Welcome to episode 112 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Mark Solms. Mark is a psychoanalyst and neuropsychologist, best known for his discovery of the brain mechanisms of dreaming and his use of psychoanalytic methods in contemporary neuroscience. He holds the chair of neuropsychology at the University of Cape Town and Greta Schur Hospital and is the president of the South African Psychoanalytical Association. He's also research chair of the International Psychoanalytical Association. Mark has received numerous awards, way too many to list, uh, but notably honorary membership of the New York Psychoanalytic Society, the American College of Psychoanalysts and the American College of Psychiatrists. He's published more than 250 articles and book chapters and six books. His second book, The Neuropsychology of Dreams, was a landmark contribution to the field. His 2002 book with Oliver Turnbull called The Brain and the Inner World was a bestseller and has been translated into 13 languages. And his latest book on the hard problem of consciousness is called The Hidden Spring. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 111 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've just found us. Every person who reviews, rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge a few more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these sorts of ideas, not just sentientists. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube too. Thanks for listening. Hello, Mark. How are you? Very well. Thanks, Jamie. Glad to be here. Yeah, likewise. Well, it's an honour to have you as another guest on Sentientist Conversations. I've followed your work and, and find it really powerful and compelling. And it zeroes in on one of the central, most important concepts in this Sentientist worldview I'm trying to develop and popularise. Um, so uh, this is really a series of conversations about what I think of as the two deepest and most important philosophical questions what's real and what to believe about reality, but then also what and who matters ethically. So they're crazily broad questions. And I have a not so secret agenda because I'm trying to develop and popularize a really simple pluralistic worldview called sentientism, which suggests that um, we should commit to having compassion for all sentient beings, any being that has the capacity to suffer or to flourish. And when it comes to epistemology, we should take a a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason to form credences and try and engage honestly with the world. But I've been lucky in these conversations to talk to a dizzying variety of people, both who agree with and disagree with that philosophy. So it'll be great to understand your own philosophical journey and where you get to where you've got to now. Uh, but before we get into those big questions, how would you best introduce yourself for people who don't know of your work? I'm, I'm a neuroscientist uh, by training. Uh, specifically working in that branch of neuroscience called neuropsychology. In other words, uh, I'm interested in the brain because it is the organ of the mind, and I'm interested in the nature of that relationship. But uh, when I trained, which was in the early 1980s, our conception of the mind within the neurosciences was really extremely narrow and rigid, not that far removed from behaviorism. Uh, frankly. So uh, because of my disappointment, uh, because I had trained in neuroscience, uh, I, I, was, I was drawn to neuroscience and neuropsychology in particular, because I was interested in 
the mind uh, from a biological point of view. So uh, I, I, I did something rather unusual for a neuroscientist, which is that I trained as well in another field, psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis, for all of its faults, at least takes as its starting point uh, the actual lived life of the mind, uh, the being of the mind. And so uh, I, 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 I took that tangent uh, in order to equip myself with concepts and methods uh, that, that can accommodate um, the subjective aspect of, of mental life and brought those into neuroscience. Um, inevitably, in the process, I also uh, found myself bringing neuroscientific concepts into psychoanalysis. And I have to say that in both directions, it wasn't uniformly welcomed by my colleagues. Uh, when I decided to train in psychoanalysis, one of my colleagues memorably said to me, that's like an astronomer studying astrology. So that's me. I'm a, I'm a neuroscientist and a psychoanalyst. And uh, I'm interested in the, in, the, in the sort of interdisciplinary space between those two fields. Yeah. And that's one of the things I've been, I've been so lucky in these conversations because I'm an amateur in all these fields. So it gives me a chance to sort of dip into one of the interesting parts of all of them. But generally, I find that people whose specialism is very deep can do enormously powerful work, but it always seems to lack some richness or insight, or it's very easy for them to miss something I find deeply important, whereas people who have a more multidisciplinary approach seem to be able to bring insights together in a much richer, more compelling way. And there's something about the nature of consciousness that, I mean, it's so obviously psychologically compelling to us because it's the essence of every moment of who and what we are, but it does seem to bifurcate people either to almost denying its existence and going down a sort of behaviorist route that tries to put it to one side or an almost mystical path that treats it as something that is otherworldly and distinct and even even magical and, and you know I, that's one of the reasons i find your work fascinating because you know i think there's a quite somewhat obvious resolution to those that we'll dig into later into the conversation but well that's a very simple fact uh, that you've alluded to there which i have found to be deeply true that um i think had i not been a neuroscientist when i trained in psychoanalysis there's a great deal about it uh, that you see as a neuroscientist that you would not see if you, if you were simply an analyst and vice versa. It, it throws things into relief in a different way because you come at them from a different perspective. But um, in, in, in later years, my most recent work, to my great surprise, I found myself working also in, in artificial intelligence. And so I now have a third perspective on, on these things. And uh, I've, I've rediscovered, you know, found once again the, the, the enormous importance um, of, of combining different disciplinary perspectives. It's, it's, it's very closely analogous to, you know, if you're born and raised in one culture and then move to another country and, and live in an, embedded in a, in a different culture, you see your original culture in a way that you could not have seen it if, if it was all you knew. Very much like that. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. And the AI angle will be another interesting one to dig into when we think about possible futures, because I think many treat that topic as a sort of science fiction irrelevance, but I think it may be creeping up on us quicker than we think. So yeah, we'll come back to that too. But let, let's start with the first of these crazily broad philosophical questions, I guess the one about epistemology and what's real and how to believe. And many of my guests 
um, tell that story by talking about whether they grew up originally in, I guess, a family or a society that was maybe more naturalistic and scientific minded, or one that was more supernatural or religious or mystical or spiritual in some way, and how their philosophy about what's real and how to go about believing has shifted over time. So it would be fascinating to know your story on that question. Well, I was, uh, there's nothing particularly interesting about my um, family origins in that respect, but but there was an important event uh, in my childhood, uh, which sharpened my my thinking about these things. I, I was, uh, my parents, uh, my mother was a believing Christian. Um, my father, uh, I never had reason to assume that he was not, uh, until one day uh, when I was maybe six years old or so, or perhaps even younger. I, I know I was going to Sunday school uh, and I was, I was being uh, taught, you know, all of the things that one learns at Sunday school. Um, without any reason to question it. You know, I was just a kid. The teachers tell you this is how it is. That's how it is. And then one morning on a Sunday, my father came into um, our bedroom because I shared a bedroom with my older brother. And he said, uh, you know, I know your mom uh, wants you to go to Sunday school, but it is a matter of choice. You know, your mom believes in all of that stuff. I don't. So, you know, if, if, if you find yourself being skeptical about what they're saying to you and you don't want to go, then you don't have to go. And this is at six that, years old. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I might even have been a bit younger. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, because I, 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 in, you know, that, that, that moment reverberated in, in subsequent years. Um, and I remember thinking back on it and wondering what, what was he doing? And, and uh, came to the conclusion that perhaps this was aimed more at my older brother than at me. And I just sort of got, got uh, included in the, in, the, in the little talk. And perhaps it was something he would have only said to me a few years later. But actually, Jamie, that's not the, the, the pivotal event. Um, that, was, that was, so I'm answering your question there by saying what kind of household was I brought up in. We were not a particularly uh, learned or intellectual family. Um, so, you know, these things were not uh, discussed in any kind of, you know, they, they, we didn't have discussions about anything other than what's for supper. Uh, but uh, the, the, the decisive event in respect of these sort of metaphysical issues was that my older brother, who I just mentioned, uh, again, uh, around that time in my childhood, um, uh, in fact, I think, it, I think it must have been shortly after the talk from my father, but it's, you know, these things are all lost in the mists of time. Um, my brother fell uh, from a very um, considerable height uh, from a three-story building. He fell onto his head, uh, um, uh, onto a concrete pavement below and fractured his skull and had an intracerebral hemorrhage. It was uh, horrific for all concerned. It's, I think, the single biggest event in my life and, and, and in his life, of course, and and in my family's uh, life, uh, my family of origin. But the, the point is that he came back from the hospital, um, you know, after uh, you know, a considerable time, a changed person. He, was, he, he looked the same, but he was not the same. His name is Lee. Uh, and, you know, my feeling, my, I was completely bewildered uh, by this, you know, <laughs> Who's this guy, uh, and and where's Lee? 
and and uh, you know it's and so I was I was forced at an at an early age to confront this question of the relationship between mind and body, the the relationship between the this, the, the person uh, and and the organism, and um, I remember uh, thinking uh, thinking this through in in all of its ramifications, and eventually coming to the conclusion that if my brother can uh, it, it be so altered uh, by damage to the to the tissues of his brain, uh, then surely the same applies to me. You know that I I must I you know my sentient being uh, must somehow be bound up with the with the uh, functions of this of this bodily organ so that was more than my father's uh, or mother's views or the views of the of the sunday school teachers it was that event and its and its immediate aftermath that made me confront the question of of mortality the relationship between body and soul yeah and i can imagine how that would sh- it would challenge if not shatter your notion of the idea of there being a sort of ineffable pure essence you know some sort of spirit or soul that is independent of the physical body and brain that continues regardless because you saw that connection in a very visceral horrific horrific way so i can i can appreciate how that would shift your thinking about the metaphysics of you know who we are and our essence did that link to thinking about more broadly about metaphysics about the existence of a deity or um, you know, other supernatural aspects, or was it all part of a package that when you thought differently about the essence of who we are as individuals, did that have any other effects on your sort of epistemology more broadly? I want to preface my answer by saying that, because you know, you're asking me about the epistemology of a five-year-old or whatever <laughs> yeah. I was. Uh, yeah. And it, so, so my, 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 my prefatory uh, observation is that I think we underestimate Little kids, you know. I mean, uh, I, I, I might have been confronted by these questions in a different way, and perhaps a little earlier, a little more starkly than most. But you know, uh, I, I, I've observed in subsequent decades talking to little ones. Um, you know, they really do think about these things uh, around that age or shortly after. You know, these things uh, do start to occur to one. So I, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, you know, obviously, all of this is from memory, but um, I'll tell you what I think the sequence of events was. First of all, uh, you know, one of the main things, of course, that one is taught uh, in in uh, Christian uh, Sunday school is that your 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 soul and your body are not one and the same thing. Um, you know, it's fundamental to to what to to that whole doctrine. So the point you just made is is exactly uh, correct. You know that, that, that it was very hard. To sustain, notwithstanding the fact that my father had already sort of undermined my confidence in in this uh, re- religious philosophy, but but observing what happened to my brother, I mean, there that was just the evidence. There it was um, that clearly he is his brain. Somehow, you know, he's he and his brain are inseparable. Uh, the, the, I mean, he was really dramatically changed, and he, he just was not the same person. Uh, I mean, I could uh, I could tell you all sorts of examples of it, but that's the bottom line. And then you extrapolate to your own condition, and you realize, you know. It, it, I remember having uh, I, I had to have a, a an, an X-ray. Uh, 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 I can't remember why I must have injured my arm or something, 
and uh, also as a little kid and seeing, gosh, there's the evidence. It's absolutely true. You know, I'm, I'm made of, you know, bones. <laughs> uh, and and it, was, it was really quite terrifying. I found it all terrifying, I have to say, because it's, it's a small step from that to, to, to starting to have uh, intimations of your own mortality. If you believe that you are somehow the same thing as your, your flesh, your living flesh, then uh, clearly that living flesh, um, you know, it, 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 it seems to dissipate. And so, you know, if you are that same thing, then you must dissipate too. And so as a little kid, I mean, I really remember it vividly. And this is not a small thing. It was a major factor in my childhood. I lay in bed at night just uh, in state of sheer panic uh, about the fact that I'm going to cease to exist. You know, that everything um, that I can possibly experience and know um, is going to disappear. And then if that's the case, uh, you know, what's the point of doing anything? Uh, it, that also happened to me. I became really depressed as a kid. Um, I remember vividly one flashbulb memory of, of, of sitting in my bedroom uh, and not being able to find the energy to, to tie up my shoelaces and go to school because they just, you know, it just seemed completely pointless. Yeah. And then, I, and then I'll tell you one further anecdote. Sorry, I'm, 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 I'm babbling on, but I, I remember in one of these panicky moments in, you know, uh, in, 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 in my bed at night, thinking, feeling this absolute panic. I remember the sh sort of shivers down my spine, literally. And, and then going to my mum, uh, well, to my mum and dad's bed, but going to my mum's side of the bed and waking her up and telling her I was scared. And, and, and she said, what are you scared about? And I, then I realized there's no point. In it's it's going to happen to her too. You know, she can't, she can't make it better. And so I told her, as I recall, I'd had a nightmare. So, you know, she could comfort me, even though you know, what she was comforting me about was, you know, was not, not what I was really, just any, any old comfort was better than that frightened, lonely terrified thought of you know our own about our own mortality yeah yeah and it's and it's understandable in a way i guess just because of the way we've evolved that to conceive you know for the for the 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 entity that is conceiving of everything to imagine its own non-existence is yeah i mean by definition we are the center of the universe from one perspective so trying to imagine that not continuing is quite a strange thing to cope with particularly as yeah as a young person, but I'd agree with your, you know, respect for young humans. I don't think it's too strong to say that the average five-year-old probably has a more robust, accurate epistemology than the average adult. Um, you know, in a sense there, you know, I, I don't want to be naive about young children. It's not like we're some sort of perfect state that then is warped, but there's something to the idea that young children are, you know, little scientists in a way, you know, we're trying to, we're using our senses, we're trying to understand, we're open-minded, we're trying to build models of the environment and reality around us and understand ourselves in at least an honest way. We might not know much. Um, whereas much of that gets trained out of us in later years through social norms and Sunday schools and various other interventions. So I, I agree. I have that sort of innate respect for the, I guess our human capacity and how it starts out at a young age when it comes to epistemology. I agree with all of that. So would you describe your worldview more generally in that sense as, I guess, naturalistic, that 
we you use evidence and reason to try and form credence and beliefs, or were there any other aspects of, you know, mysticism of the supernatural or uh, things we might think of as non-naturalistic that can per- persisted in your way of thinking at all, or, or was that did it all sort of fall by the wayside as you went through those experiences and had those thoughts? In the wake of the developmental uh, steps that we were just talking about, uh, it became atheist and. Um, then, uh, oddly enough, uh, with better education, uh, I changed my mind. I, I now would describe myself as agnostic. And um, th- that is rooted really in an um, appreciation of the limits of human um, reason, of, of, of our capacity to both uh, observe, perceive, uh, you know, to perceive uh, what is, and and to and to comprehend it, you know, we where I got that um, humility, if I may call it that, it doesn't sound very humble to say where I achieved this this humility. But where I where what made what what made me um, start uh, to 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 I mean, there are many things, but the main thing was when I started working with neurological patients and um, observed that you know with loss of a particular part of the brain. Uh, you lose your your ability to to perceive and and comprehend um, aspectuality, um, and it is and with predictable regularity. By which I mean, for example, patients with damage to the right parietal lobe, they lose they they paralyze down the left side of their bodies, but they they don't recognize that they're paralyzed. It's the most obvious thing to the external observer that they're paralyzed. Uh, but they deny it. They, they, they not just frankly deny it, they clearly do not experience it and do not believe it. And so I could multiply that example uh, many times over. But the point is that that, that uh, impressed on me the realization that, you know, it's, it's, we, we are only able to comprehend uh, as much as the instrument we use to comprehend uh, uh, is, is capable of. And it's not a perfect instrument. It's not a perfect instrument at all. And uh, so, you know, you, you, you can reverse. So what I'm saying about those patients, you know, they have less uh, than I have because my brain is more or less intact compared to theirs. But you could say, well, what if I had an extra lobe? You know, what would I perceive if we all had an extra lobe or an extra hemisphere? What would we perceive and understand that we all collectively now currently don't and can't? So, so, you know, I, I also confess to a certain, taking a certain comfort in my ignorance. You know, I, I think there is a comfort in it, in recognizing, well, I don't know. You can't know. I mean, all the evidence, so I come to the best conclusion I can, you know, and what you were saying earlier about children being little scientists. Uh, the mind is uh, fundamentally a, 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 an evidence gathering, you know, device where we, we gather what evidence we 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 have and and we come to the best inferences we can as to what what to make of that evidence. In other words, hard to explain um, what is causing us to experience what we do. You know, so I'm not saying that that I'm, I, I say, well, there's you know, because we can't know everything, there's no point in trying to know anything. I think that we can be less ignorant, uh, even with our limited instrument. We must do the best we can uh, to understand. And God knows, you know, look, for example, at quantum physics, you know, what the, the universe is very, very 
strange and, yeah. um, and, yeah. and very different from what our naive uh, sensory experience suggests. And that, that also shows how far we are able to probe beyond you know, the, 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 the surface. So I'm a scientist. I'm, I'm committed to, to trying, to using the evidence available to me, uh, formulating falsifiable predictions, testing those predictions experimentally, coming up with a better explanation uh, on the basis of those findings and so on. That's what I do. But I, I don't, I, 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 I just recognize that science has limits, um, that there are, there are some things that we cannot study empirically. Um, and there are some things that we will, uh, well, certainly as things stand, you know, there's some things we just cannot uh, begin to, uh, to understand, but we do the best we can with what we've got. Yeah, thank you. I like that balance. And, and to my mind, that, that sense of doubt and humility and comfort not knowing is absolutely central to a naturalistic scientific worldview about the world. There is a caricature of a sort of scientific way of thinking that is super confident and we've done the RCTs and we have the spreadsheet and we have the fact now you know we're done that's not how science works there's always you know provisional credences there's always openness to new evidence or there should be Um, but I think that's right you don't have to give up on knowledge but you also don't have to jump to binary you know 100% sure beliefs in anything either you can keep this space healthily open and make progress to say the same thing in a, in a different way, putting the emphasis not on the scientists, but on the non-scientists. I think that um, if we recognize, as, as you've just said, as all good scientists do, you know, that what we know is provisional, what we know is partial, uh, what we know is fallible, and uh, we, we, we constantly try to be less uncertain, uh, but we're never going to be certain about, about certainly about the big uh, questions. Uh, but we do the best we can with what we've got. Um, the other approach, um, which is to just come up with with beliefs, you know, without evidence. I think that that uh, approach, the kinds of things we were talking about earlier, like the the uh, question of mortality, uh, none of us can can ever uh, test any prediction about what happens to to me, my my subjective experiencing being. What happens? To me, after I die, um, you can make conjectures, but you know you can never uh, you can never test them until you die, and so you know, empirically uh, you've got no hope of gathering data yourself about what happens to you uh, after you after you're dead. So that's kind of terrifying, you know, that be- precisely because the uncertainty is um, is you know cannot be cannot be uh, in any uh, uh, absolute sense, it cannot be resolved, and I think it's that where that's where these where these beliefs, which speaking sort of psychiatrically, where these delusions come to our aid. You know, we have explanations for things which can't be explained. We have we have a, a patch covering that rent uh, between ourselves and 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 reality. And uh, so I have sympathy. I can understand why people come up with all of these pseudo explanations they're terribly comforting but um they arise from this what i'm saying is that the recognition of the limits of science um and where these uh, where these uh, um, overvalued belief systems come from is basically the same we're talking about the same thing yeah yeah makes sense and i th- and i'm very open-minded about 
the possibility that there will be limits to our knowledge. Um, I guess my only two points of caution is one, let's not draw those lines before we're sure. That shouldn't be an excuse for not trying to find out. I think the only way we find out the limits of knowledge is by pushing further and further and never expecting to complete the picture. And the other, the other thing, as you've just said, is in the meantime, don't feel tempted to make stuff up to fill gaps because that's another way of just closing down the pursuit and closing down the understanding and it can have yeah. dangerous side effects too. So, yeah. Well, that's, that's been a fascinating story. Thank you on this sort of epistemology side. And I think I share almost everything you said there. The second question we come on to is one of ethics morality. And often that's posed as a challenge to someone who has a more naturalistic worldview uh, from someone who has, you know, a supernatural worldview or a religious worldview or some other form of, you know, external authority that defines what good and bad are, they will come to someone like you and me and say, well, you know, how can you have an ethical basis for your way forward? You don't have the Quran or you don't have the Bible. You don't have these lists of rules. So how, how would you answer that question? And, and how, again, have you gone through that journey about thinking about, you know, what are good and bad, right and wrong ethics and morality? First of all, um, starting with my parents and then Sunday school and then, you know, one's whole education uh, and uh, enculturation and so on. You know, I, I picked up all of the, uh, I endorsed or imbibed all of the ethical and moral belief systems of, of my own culture. But, but that's not what drives me now. Um, what the, the fundamental basis of my uh, ethical and moral compass now, more than anything else, uh, is derived, you might be surprised to hear, uh, neither from religion nor philosophy, but rather from neuroscience. My own particular journey uh, as a neuroscientist, I started out studying uh, brain mechanisms of sleep and dreaming. And um, I, uh, I made a fortunate discovery really quite early on in my career that dream, the brain mechanisms of REM sleep and those of dreaming are not the same, that you can, with damage to a particular part of the brain, you lose dreaming, and REM sleep is preserved. With damage to another part of the brain, you lose, REM, you, you lose the other way around. I can't remember which way I just put it. So the, the, the pathway that is crucial for dreaming uh, turns out to be a, a thing called the mesocortical mesolimbic dopamine system. This is a motivation, profound motivational system. We share it with all mammals. And uh, why that struck me was because REM sleep uh, is, 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 is governed by brainstem mechanisms. And it, it, the fact when we discovered REM sleep and its brainstem mechanisms, it was taken as a basis for showing that all of these psychological and folk psychological ideas about dreams being meaningful and so on, that it's all mumbo jumbo because the brain stem is just like a kind of automaton. Uh, and what these nuclei are doing uh, is, is motivationally neutral. It's got nothing to do with you know, wishes and so on, which is, for example, what the Freudians speak about. But this structure that I found uh, is also rooted in the brain stem, but it's very much uh, not uh, a neutral uh, automaton. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's the essence of our, of our motivational drive. And so that led me to a reconsideration of these very basic brainstem structures. I, I was fortunate then to come across the work of Jak Panksepp, who was the expert, uh, I say was because sadly he died a few years ago, uh, he, uh, 
he showed us how there are these deep, evolutionarily ancient circuits uh, sourced in the brainstem, uh, which give rise to our basic emotions. And when I say our, here yeah, I'm speaking about mammals, because the circuitry for these basic emotions are the same in all mammals. It's not that, that we share some of these circuits also with all vertebrates and so on, but all mammals have the same basic emotional circuitry. And it's, and it's you know, mammals are 200 million years old. You know, so these basic motivational and emotional systems are 200 million years old. They, they predate by a very long shot any philosophy, um, any yeah. religion. Yeah. Um, and, and yet these are, these are um, it, I don't want to reduce uh, everything to these systems, but this must surely be the foundation of all of our values. Um, these these emotional value systems that we that we are literally born with. It's nothing to do with culture and and education. We so for example, pain is bad. Everyone knows that just because it is. You know? Believe believe um, me, I've spoken to philosophers who will argue about that for a long time. But no, I'm with you. I mean, almost just definitionally, that's what that's almost what the words pain and suffering mean is a is a negatively valent state as experienced by the experiencer. So yeah. <laughs> So, you know, there are things like, like pain and, and disgust, you know, when you've imbibed something uh, uh, that's, that's to toxic or, or, or otherwise noxious, uh, uh, the, the fright from a startle, um, hunger, sleeping, these things all feel bad. Uh, these are basic bodily values, you know, but uh, it's not only bodily, there also are emotional values, uh, like, and now I'm referring to these basic emotional circuits. Uh, there's a circuit for fear. You know, you don't need to learn uh, that. You know, it's bad to do to cause fear in somebody. To, 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 it's 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 horrible to be scared and to feel you're threatened and you're in danger and you need to escape. It's not something cultural. Uh, likewise, separation distress. You know, we mammals and this we share with birds. You know, if if you separate a juvenile mammal uh, from its caregiver, it 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 shows. Uh, uh, separation distress, um, uh, distress, distress vocalization, searching behavior, and this is not learned. So, you know, we know, we just know from the get-go that it's bad to separate a baby from its caregiver, you know, it's, and a baby that's crying, we don't like it. It's, it's horrible. We want to make it better. Um, so, you know, I could, I, could, uh, I could go on at length. I'll just say that these emotions, um, things like for example, fear, uh, separation, distress, uh, and, and separation distress uh, is what we feel when we have lost our caregiver uh, and we become separated from our attachment object. There's also a corollary, a nurturing instinct that we, we what I said, when, when a little baby cries, it makes you feel bad and you want to make it better because, you know, we have a, a nurturing care instinct drive as us mammals. Um, and you can see the biological value of that. You're looking after your offspring is, you know, is good for, 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 for the basic task of, 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 you know, of, of biology, which is uh, to, to pass on your genes. And, and rage, to, to get rid of a frustrating, impeding object, you know, and, and lust, uh, you know, all of these things, we don't learn them. So I think that, that to my, uh, uh, I believe that they are innate values. Um, that um, that underwrite 
uh, all of these other uh, more elaborated, uh, sophisticated, uh, philosophical and religious, uh, ethical and moral schemes. And I, I say again, I don't think we can reduce our values to the basic emotions, but I think that's where they spring from. And uh, uh, therefore, that, that's where you ask me, where, do, where does my sense of what's right and wrong and good and bad come from if I don't hold to any religious worldview? Well, that's where it comes from. Um, the question then is a twofold further question. The one is these different emotional motivations and values, they conflict with each other. So, you know, you, you can't, it's not enough to just, like, for example, I've said that we, this, this attachment drive makes you want to keep your, the object who loves you and cares for you, nurtures you, you know, you want to keep them close to you forever and always. Um, but the other drive, the rage one, if somebody frustrates you, uh, impedes you, gets between you and what you want, your innate inclination is to, is to, is to attack, you know, to get rid of this obstacle. And now those, are, those two drives get directed toward the same object. I mean, whose mother never frustrated them? You know? So, uh, you know, you then have to reconcile the fact that you both love uh, and need this person and they frustrate and annoy you. Um, how are you going to deal with that conflict? That's where, the, that, that's where learning um, and, and, and education um, and enculturation and so on kick in. And then the other big factor is that we, of course, are not evolutionarily equipped to live in the sorts of environments that we do. Um, you know, we, we have an evolutionary preparedness for relatively small groups uh, that are hunter-gatherers or something equivalent, you know. And um, now we live in, you know, in cities and, and in very large numbers and there's, and there's, you know, property. And so there have to be all sorts of, laws and, and artificial systems, I mean, starting, uh, ultimately ending in the United Nations and the Bill of Rights and all of these sorts of things. You know, I th in other words, I'm saying, I really do mean it when I say I don't think we can reduce our, our value systems to these basic biological ones. They can't accommodate uh, everything that we, that we have to deal with. But I, but I think the idea that, you, that if, you, if you don't hold to a religious worldview, um, then you know you 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 have no basis for being ethical and moral. I, I think that's nonsense. So there's there's a there's a biological basis for ethics and morality. Yeah, it's fascinating the way you tell that story because um, I, I'd agree. You know, there's so much complex complexity in ethics and morality. But I, I I'd be with you. Right, the raw materials of it, if you like, ultimately the basis come back to those facts about us as sentient beings and i'm sometimes a bit sloppy in my language because i'm not an academic in these fields but the way i describe it and the reason i focus on sentience i describe sentience as the capacity to have um, experiences particularly valenced experiences and i might use the word suffering to describe all the negative stuff so that's pain existential loss you know any any negative feeling physical emotional or otherwise and flourishing maybe as a very broad term for any of the good stuff you know physical pleasure love companionship satiation whatever it might be as well so it, 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 would you draw a distinction between the 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 way you described it and my use of the word sentience or do you think they are the same sort of thing because i'm quite aware there are different you know there's emotion there's different forms of affect there's consciousness there's sentiences so uh, i want to i want to say one thing uh, 
before I address that question, when I was talking about the basic emotions a, a moment ago, uh, I, I didn't mention one that I think I should have mentioned, which is play. Uh, we mammals need to play. Every, human, every juvenile mammal plays. Um, and the crucial thing about play um, is that, because you might think, well, what, you can see why lust and fear and rage and separation, distress and so on are biologically important, but play, I mean, it's just, it's not even real, it's play play, you know? Um, so why, why, do, why do we have an innate need to play? And, and so we've studied play very deeply. And uh, the, the important point that I wanted to get in here is that um, it's through play that we learn how to negotiate uh, between what I, what I need uh, and what others need. It's a social, it's, it's, it's you know, we all, want, uh, we all want to meet our own needs, but we have to learn how to meet our needs in relation to the needs of others, because we're a social species, we live in groups. And so uh, this whole thing of learning reciprocity and mutuality, of taking account of, you know, uh, how's the other if you dominate too much in play, your playmate won't play with you anymore. They say you're not being fair. You know, so negotiation, you cooperation. Yeah. yeah. So that's very important. Play is you know, really a very fundamental emotion in relation to where where our 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 system of rules, you know, standards, boundaries, uh, you know, what is what is what is permissible and what's not permissible in relation to the needs of others. So I just wanted to get that in also. No, uh, to come back to the question of you know terminologies. Um, you, so emotion is 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 a is a higher word than affect. Um, emotional affects are a subset of affects. Affects uh, include bodily affects of the kind I mentioned earlier, like hunger and sleepiness um, and pain and so on. They are valenced, so they're affects, um, uh, but they're not emotions. Uh, and the the difference between emotions and Bodily affects is a long and complicated story. But then when we go down deeper than that to sentience in general, the interesting thing is, uh, I spoke earlier of the work of Jart Panksepp uh, and how uh, he's, he, he more than anyone else drew our attention to the fact uh, that the, all of these emotion circuits, and, and, and I say, in other words, even the emotional circuits, let alone all the affect circuits, all of them, and I mean all of them, converge on the midbrain, on the on, on the brain stem, uh, on the periaqueductal gray, uh, which is which is directly adjacent to the reticular activating system. Now, the reticular activating system is where the light switch is. You know, so so we, de depending on how you define sentience, if if we can just use it as synonymous with consciousness uh, for now. Um, the most fundamental source of our consciousness in the sense of us not being in a coma, the sense of us not being asleep, you know, what wakes you up in the morning, uh, what, what is damaged uh, in, in comatose patients, you need only damage two cubic millimeters of the parabrachial complex to cause a coma in a human being. So this is, the, this is the most concentrated consciousness generating tissue that we know. That what Panksepp showed us is that this tissue is also affect generating. So that, that there is no such thing as consciousness, which is not in its most elementary form. Consciousness is valenced. Consciousness is affective. The whole point of consciousness is for the creature to know how it's doing within a biological scale of values. So 
you know, it's not, it's not just reflex. What consciousness adds is I, I am aware, I, I feel that this is going well, this is going badly, so I can make choices. It's that you don't just have automatized responses, uh, you have voluntary behaviors. Uh, voluntary is the opposite of automatic, uh, and uh, voluntary therefore means uh, based in choice rather than, than, than reflexive compulsion. And so the, the, the very basis of us being able to make choices uh, is that we feel whether this is going well or badly. And so we, and we adjust our behavior accordingly and learn accordingly. So what worked well in the past, uh, we're more inclined to do in the future. And, and, and conversely, you know, what caused us unpleasant state suffering, to use your term, uh, those are things that we will avoid doing in future. So the, 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 the term consciousness for me is synonymous with feeling. Um, feeling is the basic form of consciousness, uh, affective feeling. We then, so we start with just this, so, so consciousness just is, I feel like this, not in words, but you know, I feel like this. And then secondarily, it becomes, I feel like this about that. And so our consciousness is extended onto um, our representation of the world around us. We feel our way into our cognitions. So um, when you said, uh, you know, well, we, we must be careful about terms, emotion, uh, affect, uh, sentience, uh, I would say that they, they're deeply confluent, those terms. Uh, when, you, when you look at the anatomy and physiology um, of, of, of consciousness, um, it, it, you're, you're, you're ultimately led to the realization that the brainstem nuclei, which are homeostatic, you know, which are, which are maintaining us within our viable uh, parameters, uh, that, that those, those brainstem nuclei are the very same nuclei that give rise to, to consciousness in its most rudimentary sense. So in a nutshell, consciousness, yeah. sentience, and feeling uh, are, are, are the same thing. Yeah, that I makes sense to me. And part of the reason I tend to focus on sentience as a concept, one is because sentientism is already too long as a word. It has too many syllables, uh, whereas consciousnessism has even more. So that's one reason. The, the more serious reason is, is partly because, to my mind, sentience is, if you like, the morally salient aspect of consciousness. So some people will force extra stuff into their concepts of consciousness. They'll talk about the ability to plan for the future or some sort of advanced higher order self-representation or some degree of sapience and intelligence as well. And in a sense, that's, that's all very interesting to me. But the morally salient aspect of consciousness is just the basic capacity to, you know, I feel this way. Um, and in a way, some people use consciousness and sentience as completely synonymous. And for others, sentience is more focused on that, you know, I feel this way aspect of consciousness. But yeah, I agree. They're, they're very confluent. Um, terms, but so just in relation to the distinction you drew there between you know these higher order forms of consciousness um, and and the more basic forms, I, I think it was a big mistake uh, in my field for us to focus on the uniquely human forms of consciousness as our model example of what we mean by consciousness. Um, I think that um, you know if you want to solve a problem, if you want to understand a phenomenon in nature. You take its most elementary form, um, and then you build up from there to understand what 
these additional bells and whistles that we humans have, you know, what they do. But 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 uh, the 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 fundamental form of consciousness, um, in other words, feeling in and of itself. Um, I agree with you entirely. That is that is also the morally and ethically um, pertinent uh, uh, aspect of consciousness. But it's no small detail that it is the foundation of all the other stuff. You can't have any of these higher forms of consciousness uh, in the absence of the lower form. As I said, you just take out two cubic millimeters of reticular activating system and all the rest of it collapses. It's all predicated on feeling. And feeling, um, because there's a goodness and a badness to it, um, it's intrinsically, there's, a, there's an intrinsic value system built into it. Yeah, I mean, feeling is the foundation and all the other stuff is interesting, but it's sort of built on built on that. Yes. I guess. And I think, I, and I'd agree with that view. And I think some of it has been, again, as an amateur from the outside, driven by genuine, uh, you know, appreciation and an understanding of the fact we're quite, we are quite a special animal. So, you know, let's dig into the right ways we're special. Some of it also does seem to be anthropocentrically reverse engineered as a desperate way of trying to justify how special and unique we are. And therefore we can push those, you know, non-human animals to the side and continue doing what we do to them. And, you know, the, obviously the extreme version was the sort of Descartian denial of animal consciousness completely. And shockingly, there are still some scientists and philosophers oh, who yes, think that way few. today. It's not it, a few, I'm afraid. Uh, I mean, yeah. I'm in the thick of that world and uh, I still have, I still have many an argument with very um, highly respected uh, animal neuroscientists. Um, like, uh, if I may mention a name, because he's a friend of mine, I, he knows I, he knows I'm not. I, I mean him no ill will. But even somebody as eminent as Joseph Ledoux, uh, whose whose field of study is 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 the emotional circuitry of the mammalian brain. Uh, you know, he he has great difficulty accepting the sorts of things you and I have just been talking. Yeah, I struggle to understand it. I mean, p- partly because the story you've told about, I guess, how sentience and consciousness came into being seems to have such a strong and clear evolutionarily adaptive rationale that goes you know, way back into the biological history that, as you said, predates humans by many millions of years. So, so the idea that it could have such an ancient evolutionary history but still not be present broadly in the animal kingdom seems, uh, I, I can't get my head around, seems to have an echo of this sort of supernatural thinking that, you know, the religious way of making humans feel special is obvious. You know, we have souls, we have spirits, we have been chosen by God to have dominion, just as an example. But it seems that even many people with a very naturalistic worldview are desperately trying to find some way of partitioning us off and separating us. And When, when, uh, when Yark Panksep, who I keep mentioning, uh, was attributing emotional feelings to to small mammals like like rodents um you know his colleagues said to him you're anthropomorphizing those animals and he said no i'm zoomorphizing us yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I really like that but um the the more rational of because of course they are irrational things that get into everything you know what human narcissism is not a rational thing but the more rational conversations i've had with colleagues who are skeptical about animal emotions they start with the not unreasonable point that you know we can only know our own consciousness you know the problem of other minds that we can only observe our own and uh, therefore you know uh, one extreme view would be to say well you know therefore i can't be sure that anyone else is conscious at all 
But because other human beings look like us, behave like us, you know, that we can infer, well, they clearly are the same species as me. Therefore, I know I'm conscious, you know, therefore there's every reason to believe that they are. That's where they start. You know, and then they start saying, well, how can you know um, in relation to any other creature? Uh, because they, they're not like us. We, how do you know what the, what the crucial difference is and isn't? And, um, and then it starts to, it hinges on this thing called reportability. I think that's a whopping great mistake that um, my colleagues say, but you know, if you, if you define consciousness in any way other than the ability to report it, then how can you ever know it's there? And, you know, I've, I think that's so absurd. You know, the, when you're required to show you are not a robot on the internet, you know, you have to, it doesn't say, please type here, I am not a robot. In other words, declare it. It asks you to solve a problem, uh, which, uh, in other words, it's, it, 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 it's a test of what kind of capacities you have, um, which suggests uh, empirically, you know, that, you, that there's somebody home, uh, that you're not a robot. And I think that that's the way that we need to proceed, that you, you, you in, we, we know in the human brain, as I was saying a few minutes ago, that the, these brainstem structures are the font of, 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 of a conscious arousal. Uh, and feeling, and there's all oodles of evidence for that. You stimulate these structures, you stimulate feelings big time, you know, uh, uh, the most intense and the just variety of feelings by far uh, are stimulated uh, in, in these in these brainstem structures. And then you say, well, uh, since these other creatures have the same structures, uh, we have to assume that they do the same thing. Uh, so therefore, I predict that if I stimulate this structure, which in me uh, causes extreme uh, unpleasure, um, in, in, a, in another creature with the same structure, they will then avoid the stimulus, and that prediction is confirmed. And conversely, if I stimulate that, which in us causes orgiastic delight, uh, if I stimulate that in the, another creature with the same structure, that it will approach the stimulus and, and, and become rather keen on it, uh, that prediction is confirmed. That's science. You can't do anything more than that, you know. So that's the way we do it, uh, and it's on. And, and the, the so we've been speaking about mammals. In fact, those structures, uh, in the, the rudimentary forms uh, of consciousness generating structures, are not. It's those emotion circuits. I said we share with all mammals. Some of them we share with all vertebrates, and these uh, all vertebrates have a reticular activating system and a periaqueductal gray, and every time we ask empirically uh, are you conscious uh, not not uh, do you feel something not by asking them to say it to us but by their behavior uh, you know which is normal science you know you make a prediction this is what's going if i'm right then when i do this that will happen it always happens the answer is always yes so i think that at the very least we have to we have to assume at the very least i, I emphasize that we have to assume that sentience that feeling exists in all vertebrates therefore that it's about 600 million years old but i but i i, I think that's uh, there's there's good reason to to infer from the behavior for example of of the octopus um with cephalopods uh, they have very different brains from us but 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 you know so it's, it's much harder to tell but um so you know and when you think about what feeling is for what i was just saying earlier it's, it, 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 it raises you above the level of reflex. So, you know, it, it enables you to deal with unpredicted situations. 
and and heaven knows there's enough of that in the universe, you know, that it's full of unpredictable situations. And so to be able to then make choices, it's a massive adaptive advantage. And it's um, so it's it's quite you know I find it entirely uh, incomprehensible that people uh, that my colleagues don't recognize that that rudimentary form of consciousness must go back a very long way, um, and any creature that is capable of voluntary behavior uh, or making choices, those choices must be rooted in the value system, and uh, you know feelings seem to be those values. Anyway, sorry, I'm really repeating myself now, David. No, it's great. I mean, it makes sense. And and as I said at the beginning, the danger is that we just agree too much because I I love the way you think this through. Now, um, this sentientism worldview I'm suggesting just says naturalism and it just says sentience matters, if you like. It's neutral on philosophy of mind. So it doesn't say what sentience or consciousness is. It doesn't say how you have to think about that. It just says whatever suffering and flourishing are, they are morally salient, we should care about them, we should have compassion for them. So, but at the same time, I do find philosophy of mind fascinating. And, um, you know, one stance that would, you know, push back on your and my way of thinking is a, is a panpsychist way of thinking. So, you know, we've already talked about the idea that maybe feelings are the foundation, but then people add extra stuff into definitions of consciousness. In a way, the panpsychists almost go the other way and say, you know, they strip it down to the degree that it's an essential element of almost everything. And I think when they, when you describe, you know, using the I am not a robot test, they might challenge you in the same way as you challenge the behaviorists. So they would say, well, you're, you're just looking at the behavior, just looking at the stuff, the reports on the outside, you know, yeah, but what is the essence of the sentence itself? What is the thing? What is the fire in the equations? You know, aren't, aren't you missing something just by examining this sort of from, from the outside? The whole wonder of sentience and consciousness is it's an ineffable private thing that somehow feels really powerfully must be distinct from information processing or all the other stuff going on with the reports. How, what's your general response to that? It would be wonderful if panpsychism was, was, was an accurate uh, description of uh, the place of consciousness in the universe, because that means even when you dissipate uh, upon your death, you know all your little particles are still going to be conscious in some form. Yeah. Uh, so you know, although I, although, I, I, although as I understand it, you'd you'd be very lucky for them to recombine in a way that would create your consciousness. Be but... more than very lucky. Yes, <laughs> it would be the most unlikely possible. Absolutely. Uh, but, yeah. But my 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 approach to the panpsychist question is, you know. I've told you in a potted way during this conversation uh, how I was led through my own scientific life to the conclusion that these brainstem nuclei are the, are the uh, in, in our own case, uh, these are what generate consciousness. And uh, that when we look at all other creatures that have these same nuclei, every testable prediction as to you know, whether or not they're conscious, uh, you know, as I already told you, the, the answer is always yes. Uh, so then the question becomes, okay, what do these, how do these structures work? What do they do? Um, that's, that's a scientific question. And because there are many things going on in my body, uh, which, which I'm not conscious of. So just being a, a human being doesn't mean I'm conscious of everything that's going on inside of the boundary of my skin. You know, they, they're certain, it seems that the nervous system is particularly important. You only become aware consciously of other parts of your body because they're represented. Uh, uh, nervously, they, they are represented in, in the brain. So, you know, 
there's it's clear that the, like for example peristalsis you have nothing to do with it you know um, blood pressure regulation you have nothing to do it's entirely automatic entirely non-conscious process is it possible so there are there are distinct nuggets of consciousness that i'm not aware of that are running those things that are just thinking breathe in out in out but, but. Sure, i can understand that, <laughs> that but let but let's take this because we you know if we're scientists you know then we go with the evidence we start with the evidence i am conscious we uh, you know i know i am i can observe it uh, I, 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 i'm a human being uh, we find which structures are there uh, in the human brain which generate this consciousness that i am aware of unlike this hypothetical consciousness that might be there in some other part of my body that I'm not aware of, this one I know is here. And then uh, I, I, I strip it down to its essentials and I find that it's a homeostatic mechanism, as I said. That's basically, how, I mean, absolutely how it works, that all of, the, all of these feelings are homeostatic. You know, when you're in your viable bounds, you don't feel anything. When you move out of your bounds, you feel an unpleasure of a particular category, uh, you know, hunger, thirst, pain, sleepiness, rage, fear, whatever. And then uh, if you're moving back into your viable bounds, then you, know, you feel pleasurable feelings. So we know what the mechanism is of the feelings of the, of the sentience that we, that we do know we have. And um, so then that mechanism, uh, you, know, you, you have to understand what is that, how does that work? That takes us beyond, it takes us into self-organizing systems. You know, homeostasis is a is a biological um, manifestation of self-organization. In other words, systems that, that persist, systems that resist entropy, that don't dissipate, systems that continue to exist, they, they, they have to work at continuing to exist because the second law of thermodynamics says things just dissipate yeah. always. Yeah. You know, entropy always increases in every natural process. Living things oppose entropy and they do it through homeostasis. So, so you know, if, if that is the, the if from what we've been taking from our own personal subjective experience, going all the way through the evidence, we come to the conclusion that the mechanism whereby feeling, the, the elementary form of consciousness is generated, is it's an extended form of homeostasis. Then I have difficulty uh, believing that any other system that doesn't have uh, this basic mechanism there's no you know, what, what evidential basis is there for thinking that it too is conscious uh, you know so so at that point i start uh, i start losing confidence uh, in anyone who says well you know because th this is conscious everything else might be too i just there is absolutely no scientific reason to believe it um, and it's not just going from the phenomena down to the mechanism it's then when you whenever you find that mechanism in uh, another creature, you can predict it should be able to make choices. You know, it, it, it should not function absolutely stereotypically and automatically. Um, and that's what we find. So a thing that functions absolutely stereotypically and automatically, it doesn't have any, it doesn't display any of the functionality that feeling seems to be for. Feeling seems to be for being able to do more than just always do the same thing. And, uh, you know, I'm talking there about, for example, single cells and so on. You know, they are bacteria. I don't believe they're conscious because they don't behave in any way that suggests that they're conscious. They, they, they certainly uh, clearly are alive, uh, but their, their behavior is 1000% predictable. There's absolutely no choices they make. They always do exactly the same thing in the same circumstances. And those are bacteria. They're alive. 
you know, you then go to rocks and you think, for, for heaven's sake, <laughs> what atoms, and, leave, atoms and quarks, yeah. Yeah. And so, that, uh, you know, I, I, have, I have great difficulty accepting the panpsychist view. I, I certainly do yeah. accept that there's a, there's a gray area, you know, where we become less certain about is this thing sentient or isn't it? Just to show you, I'm not, I'm not fundamentalistic. Um, I also believe um, that if we have uh, got the, the uh, fundamental mechanism whereby feelings uh, are caused, you know, this homeostatic mechanism is nothing complicated. You know, we understand how it works. I mean, we can reduce it to, to causal equations. Um, and so I'm, I'm even of the view that it should be possible to artificially engineer such a thing. I, 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 I'm even willing to believe that it's possible possible uh, that you could have an artificial uh, uh, computer-based agent uh, which has the same functionality. In other words, its, it's, it's basic uh, design principle is that it's seeking to continue existing uh, and it has various categories of needs that it has to satisfy in order to do so. And deviations from those needs are existential threats uh, to its continued existence. And uh, that, uh, that if it had this capacity to be able to register how it's doing here and now in, you know, in uncertain situations, I would be willing to, to entertain the possibility that, that even a non-living thing which has that functionality might have some artificial version of some artificial form of, 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 of sentience. So I, I'm, not, I'm not prejudiced about, you know, when I, when I say I'm not a panpsychist, uh, you know, it's, it's the principled scientific reasons for rejecting panpsychism in my view. Yeah, thank you. And I'm with you all the way on that. I think and when people say, you know, you're not getting to the essential essence of consciousness, you're just describing it in a scientific way, you're looking from the outside. I don't see a fundamental difference between that criticism and saying of, you know, a particle physicist, you're not really getting to the essence of a quark or an electron. You're just looking at its effects or its behavior. And it's like, well, one what else can we do but try and use our experience and evidence to try and understand things? And two, um, if there is some, if, if the essence of a thing is even a meaningful concept, why make up something to fill that gap? Again, it sort of echoes our earlier conversation. If, if we don't know what the essence of a quark is or some quantum field is or sentience, you know, why posit something that we don't have evidence to support? Um, Absolutely. Think, so, so, so I don't necessarily think there's a radical difference between those two challenges. The answer is just let's use science to try and work it out. I also don't see a radical difference between the reports of other people about their consciousness and our, our own internal self-reports about our consciousness. You know, there's a sense to which obviously my own consciousness feels radically special and different and ultimately the only thing I'm 100% confident exists. But in a way, aren't I just reporting internally about that and is that radically different from the reports i might get from somebody else and ultimately i can imagine a situation where you know in the future of fmri scanners or pet scanners or artificial intelligence we might be able to you know get right down to an even deeper level to the extent that you could actually someone could watch my brain activity and understand what i'm thinking you might even be able to have a you know, a bat emulator installed that will help you answer Nagel's question of what it really feels like. Because in a sense, I, I think ultimately consciousness and sentience are really classes of information processing that have 
evolved for the reasons you've laid out, that it proved adaptive to conceive of this pattern of matter that as something that needs to persist, needs to understand itself, needs to understand agents, needs to understand the environment. And valence is a way of going towards the good and away from the bad. And that's pretty much it. Um, so, but, but there's, a, there's another approach to panpsychism that I don't agree with either, but I think is more intellectually attractive, which is, you know, my approach is a sort of very hard line, naturalistic, materialist, physicalist. I just think that consciousness is what it happens to feel like to run this class of information processing. That's it. Uh, it's just a useful word to describe that. Um, so in that sense, I don't see that there's anything radically different between the information processing that's going on in my head now and the information processing in my laptop or even the information processing in my thermostat. I think it's all information processing. It's configured in different ways. It operates in different ways, but there's no magical difference there. And as you imply, there there's probably is a sort of fuzzy area where it becomes difficult to tell whether consciousness is there or not. So some people who are drawn into a panpsychist view take that approach and they almost say that because there's sort of fuzzy boundaries, maybe it just gets less and less conscious and less and less conscious, but ultimately there's still information processing going on in the electron as it spins around. Maybe there's some sort of minimally conscious sense of what it's like to be an electron. And I don't follow them down that path, but it seems to be slightly more coherent to me than this sense of, I intuitively feel this thing that seems somehow magical. Therefore I will posit it as the foundation of all physics, which is a bit harsh, but. Yeah, many people don't realize that uh, David Chalmers, um, the author of the term, the hard problem of consciousness, in his paper on the hard problem, when he first formulated it, in 1995, he took that view that you've just enunciated, that, that all information, that the, that the inter, as he put it, the internal aspect of information is consciousness, uh, that the being of information is conscious, is, is, is what we mean by being conscious. And it's a very little bit of information is a very little bit conscious. Now, I'll tell you what my, what my problem is with that. Uh, if you go to Shannon's original, uh, his 1948 paper, where, where the concept of information um, uh, as a quantity uh, was introduced into physical science. The title of that paper is A Mathematical Theory of Communication. So information requires an information source and an information receiver. Uh, you, you have to, so, you know, his famous binary digits, one or zero, the, the bit binary digit. It's an answer to a question. Information is as uh, Shannon uh, defined it, which is, which is the natural scientific understanding of information, is it's got to do with probability. You know, the, more, the, the, the more unpredictable a system is, the more information it contains. The, the more predictable it is, the less. Like flick, flick a coin, uh, there's only two possible outcomes. Uh, that's one bit of information. It's, is it heads? Yes uh, or no. Okay? Uh, throw a uh, roll a dice. You know, there's, there's six possible states. Um, and so uh, the the base two log uh, of six is is three. So there are three bits of information. There are three questions you have to ask. Is it odds or evens? Is it more than four? And then you have to ask the further question of okay, is it four? You know, then then you then you get to um, to you, you can predict, you can know uh, how much you can know what the state is of the of this thing, this event, uh, the ro the rolling of the dice. You can know what state is act it's actually in. In other words, which which number is is up. 
and so the more unpredictable the thing is, the more information, which means the more questions you need to ask in order to know, to describe the state of that system. So this is the rub in what I'm saying, is that you can't speak of information in Shannon's sense without, without speaking of a question asker. You know, who, you have to ask a question. I think information isn't something that just exists in itself. Uh, it, it's, 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 it, it intrinsically has to do with, you know, what do you want to know about? Uh, so there has to be somebody, there has to be a measurement that's taken. Uh, and this is, it goes also into all sorts of fascinating questions about quantum physics, you know, where, where the actual making of the measurement is such, such a crucial part of how we understand quantum uh, phenomena. So the asking of the question requires some, you know, that, that just, so the question becomes, if you're going to say that, that information is the fundamental sort of uh, property uh, of, of sentience, then, then I would have to say, well, you know, then you have to tell me where the question asker is. That's, 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 you know, as I said, there's a source and a receiver, and the receiver has to ask the question of the source, and then you get your one or zero or, or whatever the, the, the answer is, the more and more and more complex answers. So information in itself uh, isn't, doesn't exist unless there's the asking of questions. And so therefore you have to introduce agents that are asking these questions. So for me, it comes down ultimately to where do question askers come from? And so the, the, that brings us back to homeostasis, which is what will happen uh, to my entropy if I do that? You know, it, that, that's what feeling is. It, that's the information it's saying, you know, that's good, that's bad. Uh, one, zero, good, bad. Um, and uh, it, 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 it's, so it's only a, a self-organizing system, a system which has some goal, uh, which needs to ask questions uh, in order to obtain answers, because it's trying to, you know, because it, because it, the, the wonderful phrase that Daniel Dennett used uh, was that the, 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 the computer has to give a damn. It, it has to matter to the thing uh, for it to for it to need to extract the information in the first place. So, I think that um, the idea that all information is somehow uh, it, it, and also the opposite idea. You know, um, who is it? Um, Tononi, who says, you know, it's 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 a, it's a matter of how integrated the information is. I, I, I think one bit of information carries no jot of consciousness, and lots and lots of information uh, just by itself. Um, you know, it's not. It's a, it's a matter of the the, the configuration of the system uh, that is asking the questions. Uh, I think that that's where sentience comes from. Yeah. It's the the giving a damn uh, yeah. about uh, the, the needing to ask questions. Yeah, thank you. No, I, I like that perspective. And I think even even more broadly, if we're going to get to the stage where we're saying, you know, even a quark has some base level of consciousness, I think we've almost almost destroyed the concept of what consciousness means. We've taken it so far away from what, why we are trying to understand this phenomenon in the first place that we've almost rendered it meaningless. So, yeah, I, f I find that a difficult I think it's down. very much like the idea of God. If you, if you, um, if you accept uh, that there was a Big Bang uh, long, long before um, living things emerged on planet Earth, um, then you have to assume there was a very long, and, and, and you know, the, there was a very long time uh, before 
uh, living after bacteria and, and, and things of that, single-celled organisms, uh, before they become conscious organisms, you know, I, I think that the, 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 you have to accept that consciousness must have been, must have emerged out of something more elementary. Yeah. Um, the, the alternative is that consciousness was there from the beginning. And that, that is pretty much like the idea. In the beginning, there was, you know, yeah. some, <laughs> some super sentience. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm nervous. just existed forever. I'm, I'm ner- and this isn't fair of all panpsychists, but I'm nervous that there, it's yet another example of this desperation for us humans to put ourselves at the center of everything. So we did it with heliocentricity. We did it with a God that, you know, apparently we were created in their image. Um, and I'm just worried that this is another instance of, you know, us and our consciousness being so overwhelmingly important to ourselves that we have to posit it as central to even the foundation of everything. So I'm not sure that's yeah, not that's not a fair motivation, because I think many panpsychists talk about it in a very different way. One is of humility. You know, everything is conscious. We're not special. But I think there's still something to that. But anyway, we should we should, we should leave the philosophy of mind for a moment, because that was a a fascinating tangent to my normal conversations, but given your work on this, I could not resist delving into that for you. Uh, but to come back to the, the ethical question, the other thing that I think was really interesting is the way you described it, to my mind, if it doesn't break the sort of is-ought distinction, it at least softens it or sidesteps it, because you seemed very comfortable talking about how something feels, being bad or good, being directly related to bad or good ethics, i.e. causing, needlessly causing an entity to feel bad is a bad thing to do. And I feel, I, I, I find that almost definitionally compelling as a way of thinking about what morality is, because I'm not sure what morality is if it isn't some form of concern for others. And as soon as we're concerned for others, we're concerned for how things are going for them, you know, their well-being, their suffering, their flourishing. So I, I, lo- I like that framing. I think some people will challenge it, but I don't see how you can distinguish those things and if you do i think you end up with some very dangerous ethics but the but the second so i'd share that foundation if you like the raw materialism ethics with you the second part of this question really is about moral scope because i think almost every human has compassion for, of some sort even the worst humans you know love their own mothers normally um but but there's a critical question which i think is widely neglected in philosophy and public thought generally which is okay who gets to be included in our scope of moral consideration and there's an implication in what you say that I agree with that if sentience is the raw material of ethics, that in a sense, you know, all flourishing, all suffering should matter, and therefore all sentient beings should be morally considerable. We should have some degree of compassion for them all. That's a theoretical concept, I guess, which in practical terms, for example, per our conversation on Twitter, has you know led me to veganism, for example, because I think veganism essentially is trying to avoid exploiting or needlessly harming or suffering any sentient being. It flows directly from that. But I'm interested in your view about the practicality of that ethics. One, you know, is that how you set your scope of moral consideration? Again, you hinted that even AI, if it becomes sentient, you know, you might care about them too. But also your journey and how and whether then, to what degree that can be put into effect practically. Because that's another area that is fraught with social norms and indoctrinations and difficulties. I want to start by uh, just uh, picking up on a throwaway line uh, that you made at the beginning of what you just said now about um, with re- you know, referring to the, the 
you can't derive an ought from an is. Uh, I, I, you said it doesn't quite do away with it. I think it does do away with it. I think that you can derive an ought from an is. Once you know what is in terms of these basic affective um, values of, of creatures uh, that are um, equipped with, with affectivity, uh, I think that there's an ought that flows from that because you know everything you said earlier, uh, uh, well, not, not earlier, you said now, um, you know, that morality must have to do with, you know, reducing suffering for needless suffering in others. It, uh, you know, it, it must have something to do with, it's bad to cause suffering uh, and, it's, and it's good to minimize it. Um, that, that, that is, I think, the fundamental, I mean, it's, it's, it's the consequentialism, this is what it's all about, you know, and it, I think that you can't, I don't see how you can define uh, you can even begin to talk about these things without starting with feelings. What do you mean by bad and good if you don't mean it causes suffering, you know, and it reduces suffering? So it's all got to do with feelings. So, to, so that, that um, leads to the answer to the big question that you're asking, which is that it must, the, 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 the set of, you know, who we have to have compassion for or what we have to have compassion for is anything that can suffer that surely the, the the basic value must be we must minimize suffering minimize needless suffering um and anything that can suffer has to be included within that net there is a fuzziness as i said earlier i am i have no no uh, compunction whatsoever about including all vertebrates in that net uh, i think it starts to get a bit blurred after that uh, I, i'll tell you my own my own uh, uh, opinion uh, is that insects uh, uh, do feel, um, and that uh, and that cephalopods uh, uh, do feel. Um, the the, 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 the I, I, my own opinion is, as I said, that bacteria don't. Uh, and there's a there's a you know there's a there's a. Uh, I also don't believe that plants do. Um, so, I, I, uh, uh, accepting that there's a grey area. I would say everything that we have reason to believe, scientific reason to believe, has feelings, not not philosophical conjectures that yeah. it's possible, <laughs> but you know that there is there's scientific reason to believe uh, that 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 this that this uh, thing I, I say thing because as I as you correctly picked up uh, on, uh, I don't believe it necessarily has to include only living things. I believe it is possible to engineer artificial feeling machines, and then they do. They have to be incorporated. They then have, you know, we have to have concern about, like, why would you want to make a sentient robot? What do you want it to do for you? You know, it's, uh, uh, it, it, can that be right? Is it not a new form of slavery? And, and um, the the um, so anything that has the capacity that we have reason to believe has capacity to feel uh, has to be included within that net. So, I mean, I'm giving a very simple answer to your question, but I think the answer is simple. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in, in a way, that's, the, uh, that's the, the sort of irony because so many thousands of words of brilliant thinking have been written on these topics of epistemology and moral scope. But I think the answers really are quite that simple. You know, all, all suffering matters. You can go back to Bentham and, you know, and, and answer that question. You know, can they suffer? I think that is the essential question. Um, almost flows from the definition of morality. But maybe we should come on to the final section, because I think when we're thinking about, you know, how to make the world a better place, in a sense, 
our answer to that question defines the scope. I guess we're saying, how can we make the world and even the universe better for all sentient beings? And you know, how, how might we go about that? Or at least make it less bad. Um, and it strikes me often that we're in a weird position because I think you and I share a naturalistic way of understanding the world. But most human beings on the planet, at least in some domains, disagree with this because they hold to arbitrary, fabricated or unfounded beliefs, whether they're religious or otherwise. So in a sense, we share a sort of quite strong common sense, I think almost self-evident stance, but we're still in the minority. And I think when it comes to moral scope, again, most humans might agree with this technically, because I think most people have some degree of compassion for non-human animals, but whether it's because of social norms or um, cultural context or the way people were brought up, whatever it is, most people around the planet, at least in practical terms, do exclude vast tranches of sentient beings from their moral consideration, whether it's wild animals, farmed animals, or actually other groups of humans. And we can see the horror that does with intrahuman ethics as well. So again, it feels like both of those stances are sort of almost self-evident, almost tautologically. It's like, how could people disagree? But nearly every one of the 8 billion do. So in that context, it feels like um, sometimes the challenges that are facing us in the future are more ones of human psychology and sociology and social norms than they are necessarily of you know working out answers and working out ethics but um how does that leave you thinking about the best ways of making a better future for all sentient beings and you can go sort of star trek utopian vision you can think about human ethics causes you can think about non-human animal ethics for example or the role of you know psychoanalysis and, and the work you do in very practically trying to help individual sentient beings feel better. But it's a crazily broad question, but we're, you can go wherever you'd like with how to fix all the world's problems. <laughs> well, uh, I will give you uh, probably just two thoughts uh, on, on, on that, and maybe they're reducible. Maybe they end up being the same thought. In the Sunday school that we spoke about at the beginning of our conversation, I was taught that you must love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and I remember, I, I really do remember when the Sunday school teacher said that to me and explained what it meant. Uh, and it also had something to do with us giving our Christmas presents away or something. I thought, what? You know, I mean, what kind of philosophy is this? You know, and uh, later on in life, when I was better educated and understood things more deeply, I actually uh, came to the view that that's a very good, that's a fun, basic Christian ethic. And I think it's a very good one. Love your neighbor as yourself means, to me, it means that you, if you recognize that there are other sentient beings, uh, then, you know, you, you, you know what, it, what your feelings mean to you. If you recognize that others have the same thing, uh, then, you know, you have to recognize that they have the same self-interest you do. So there's nothing wrong with taking account of your own self-interest as long as you recognize you're not the only one. You know, you have to take account of everyone's self-interest. That was. To the extent that I found it necessary to develop some sort of moral philosophy of my own as to how I'm going to behave, both not only clinically, but socially. I mean, I live in a very unequal country where you know, I come from a very privileged background where one lives, one sees the, and, and, and has, to, has to resist the temptation to not see you know, terrible suffering every day and it's overwhelming 
So I, in, in my trying to navigate a course through all of these things, uh, needing to have some compass, uh, that was that I found, ironically, I found myself settling on this Christian ethic that you must love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, recognize your neighbor is a self too. And, 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 and here I'm not only speaking about my human neighbors, I'm speaking about sentient creatures as, uh, uh, or sentient things in the sense that we've been talking about. So that's, it's, it's sort of like Kant's categorical imperative, I suppose, uh, is, is what it boils down to. But now, when I, the reason I start like that, I said I'm going to tell you two things, and they might be the same thing, is that when I then start looking at myself, uh, I must love my neighbor as myself. Um, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a mixed bag. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a saint. Um, I, I, so I, when I came back, I left South Africa during apartheid. Um, because those days, people who looked like me were, were conscripted into the apartheid army. And so I, 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 in fact, moved to England. I lived in England for 14 years. And then I came back here uh, after the dawn of democracy here. And uh, I, I took over a family farm. Uh, and, you know, these farms, my farm was established in 1690. Um, and that's pretty near the beginning of the colonization of South Africa. So, you know, here I am inheriting this piece of land. Uh, and so I had to start dealing with the ethics and uh, whatnot of that. You know, what, what do you do? Ethically, the only right thing to do if you inherit stolen goods uh, is you've got to give them back. And that's where I found the limits of my own goodness. You know, I thought, I want to give it to my kids. You know, I, I don't want to give, I don't want to, it wasn't me who took the land. It happened 330 years ago, you know, and, and so on. So what I'm saying is that, you know, if you're going to face the facts, if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, you have to recognize what we mean by yourself. Yourself is not something to be idealized. Uh, what I ended up doing, by the way, uh, was uh, we, we I mortgaged my farm to buy a farm next door so that the farm workers could also own land. And then we formed a partnership. You know, so, but please note my self-interest is preserved there, but I'm taking account that so I want to have something, but I mustn't forget other people want it too. So we have to find some. So I'm using that kind of personal story to, to illustrate this point, the second point I'm wanting to make, which is that there are limits to our goodness. When I said that we mammals, the same seven as it happens, seven basic emotional values. Uh, they include nice things like play and, and, and you know, and attachment bonding and, and lust, uh, if that's a nice thing. Uh, but it also includes things like rage and fear, uh, you know, and, and, and dominance behaviors and so on. These are also natural things. Uh, there's a great deal of self-interest built into, uh, into these uh, phenotypic endowments. Uh, you know the the value system um, of, of 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 all living things is you know that I want to survive and I want my offspring to, and my species and so on. That's so how we that's I, how I think, we got here. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that um, you know, into into if how are we going to better flourish as a species and as a, as a species in relation to what we do to other species and and what we do to our planet and so on. I think we have to start with a recognition that you know we 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 have we have built into us some pretty nasty predilections too, and we need to understand what they're there for, how they work, uh, take account of them, not airbrush them out 
even in, in our own beloved selves, as I said, for me, it was like a very painful business, frankly, to recognize, you know, the morally right thing to do is to give my palm back, but I'm not going to do it because I don't want to, you know, um, but which means I'm not as good as I would like to be, you know, then face that fact and then, and then, and, and then convey it as I did in my case, you know, to the farm workers who were, by the way, descended from the people from whom this land was stolen and, and, and also descended from slaves. Just talk about it to say, you know, this is, I can see this is the right thing to do. I can, this, is, this is what I can bring myself to do in, in that direction. You know, what do you think? Huh? So just, I think we need to be more honest about the limitations of our goodness and recognizing that other people are also not only good, you know, there are lots of shits in the world. Uh, you know, we have to find ways of dealing with, you know, with these, these, these facts about, about, about ourselves. So I think educating ourselves about the multiplicity of values, you know, we have multiple values, even at the most rudimentary level of our phenotype, we have multiple values, and they're not all of them uh, um, uh, um, altruistic. Some of them are. Care is an altruistic, or at least largely altruistic, Play involves, you have to develop empathy if you're going to be able to learn how to play. You know, but some of them are not. Rage is entirely self-preservative, you know, and so, and, and it's there. It exists, you know, you just look around you, you see it all over the place. So, so and, and these values, so we have multiple values and they conflict with each other. Uh, and we need to find ways of facing those facts and resolving these conflicts between our the funny old mixtures, you know, that we are. So my view, my worldview in respect to these sorts of questions is not a utopian one. It's not an overly sentimental and idealistic one. It's a it's a value driven one, recognizing that that you know look that we have a multiplicity of values. Some of them are pretty darn selfish, um, and uh, and we need to face those facts. If you don't face facts, you'll never find solutions um, as to how to deal with them. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. I, I hope that begins to answer your your question. But it comes down again. I will say as my final word on it: love your neighbor as yourself, uh, but don't idealize who yourself is. Yeah, it's not a bad starting point, is it? And I and I think the it's an echo in a way of our conversation about epistemology because there's no such thing as perfect knowledge or understanding. We should give up on that idea and get much more realistic about what's possible to know and think about credences instead of beliefs and be provisional and probabilistic. But I think the same can be true in an ethical and moral stance. There is no such thing as moral perfection. And ultimately, even being sometimes being, you know, super demanding of ourselves in an unrealistic way can have dangerous side effects and can work out badly. So maybe it's a maybe it's a cop out. But again, this sort of sentientism idea isn't specific about the level of demandingness. It doesn't say, you know, should you sell all your worldly possessions and donate everything to charity until you're as poor as the average person? It, it is not specific on demandingness. There's lots of different people with different views on how demanding we should be of ourselves ethically. But again, it just tries to set a very simple baseline of saying, you know, we moral consideration for all sentient beings. And what does that moral consideration mean? It means we wouldn't needlessly cause them suffering or death. That's, that's the baseline. We can obviously do much more than that and help with flourishing and we can you know, do all sorts of other wonderful things in the world, but at least let's set that as a baseline that we wouldn't, you know, we'll, we'll aspire not to break. But no, I, I like the way you put that. It's a combination of a sort of an idealistic view, but also a realistic understanding of ourselves and 
who we are and how we've evolved. So, um, yeah, fascinating. Thank you. And again, combines morality and a sort of naturalistic understanding of the world in a way I think is deeply important. It's not enough to focus on compassion. It's not enough to focus on a naturalistic understanding. We, we need the two. That's the, the essence of this idea. So, well, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Thank you. It's a real privilege to uh, get your insights um, on all of these crazily broad topics. What's the best way of people following you, buying your books, uh, learning more about your work? So, so I've enjoyed our conversation very much too, Jamie. Thank you very much for, for inviting me and for, and for uh, spending this time with me. Um, the, the, when it comes to books, uh, there's, there's one book of mine that I wrote, uh, that I published last year, which I, which I think uh, covers everything we've talked about. Yeah, so yeah. that's what I would recommend. Uh, it's called The Hidden Spring, uh, with the subtitle, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. Um, and that's available in all the usual places. Of course, one hopes that one will, that one's readers will buy it from their local bookshop. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I discovered recently that my local bookshop in turn buys it from through Amazon. <laughs> the, um, the, um, so the Hidden Spring is, is the book of mine that I would very much uh, in, encourage people uh, to read if they want to know more about why I think what I think along these lines uh, it, it addresses all of these sorts of issues. And then uh, other than that, I'm only on um, one social media platform, that's Twitter, which was recently bought by a school. Elon Musk went to the same school as me. Oh, really? Were you buddies yeah. there? No, he was younger than me. Um, but so, so the only social media I'm on is Twitter. My, my handle is at Mark underscore Solves. Uh, and so I always post things that, you know, lectures that I've given and papers that I've published and thoughts on matters of, uh, of the kind that interest people like you and me. Uh, I, I do it there. That's Thanks brilliant. again very much, Jamie. Yeah, thank you. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. And um, let, let me know if I can help your son nudge you towards, you know, your final steps in your journey to veganism to put our sentiocentric compassion into action. <laughs> But it's been, no, it's been a genuine pleasure. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to have you as a guest on Sentientist Conversations. And um, yeah, the danger is we just agree with each other too much. But No, but it's a wonderful thing you're doing. So good luck with it. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?